Welcome to Talk the Talk. I'm Bill Newman. And I'm Buzz Eisenberg. And we are joined by Michael Clare, who is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine and Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. And we have Professor Clare with us because he is expert on defense and security issues. And we have so much to talk to him about Ukraine, Gaza, Yemen, Taiwan. Oh, how about the uh, caucuses in Iowa? Buzz, what's your thought? Oh, hey. Here's okay, my, that's a good my, summary. Yeah, that's a pretty good summary, actually. Yeah. No, but here's my thought. I've got a tiny measure of optimism, and here's how it goes. Trump last week predicted he was going to win by two-thirds, a minimum of 60%, he said. He got 51%. So I'm thinking even in Iowa, half of the Republicans are not sure that they want Trump. They voted against Trump uh, in their caucus. So I'm thinking we have, you know, super. we have New Hampshire coming up. Trump's probably not going to do as well as he'd like to in New Hampshire. We then have South Carolina, where uh, former Governor Haley is probably going to do well. And then we have Super Tuesday coming up in about a month. And a dozen and a half states or so in Super Tuesday, who knows? You know, they include California. They include, uh, we got Michigan. We'll see whether or not some of those 50% numbers become smaller in those states. But I'm still going to say... Uh, well, I, I think that you uh, are way too optimistic. Uh, in fact, Trump won uh, by over 30 points in the caucuses in Iowa yesterday. That's three times the margin of the previous largest winner for any Republican candidate in the caucus ever in the history of the state. Uh, the upcoming primaries on Super Tuesday are because they've been uh, reconfigured to help Trump, our winner-take-all primaries for the Republicans. Uh, Haley will do better in New Hampshire because Democrats and independents get to vote in the Republican primary in, uh, in that state. Uh, the, the polls in South Carolina indicate that Trump is trouncing Nikki Haley. Uh, so I think there's very little op reason for optimism in any of this. In the world of things to be uh, not optimistic about, we were talking with Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies, Michael Clare, and we have a list of things we want his perspective on. Ukraine, Gaza, Yemen, uh, Taiwan. I hardly know which disaster to begin with, but since it has not been as much in the news recently, and we will certainly get to these other uh, serious confrontations and wars going on, Ukraine, not so much in the news, but there's a war going on. People are dying every day, and Russia is making progress in taking over that country with its ongoing uh, uh, slaughter of uh, civilians and its progress on the battlefield. Michael Clare, what's the status in Ukraine? Well, I wouldn't say that Russia is making progress on the battlefield. It's succeeding in the sense that it's just grinding Ukraine down. And Russia is in so much better uh, position to uh, sustain a war of attrition, which is what we have now. Daily battles, trench, trench against trench, drone against drone, artillery against artillery, day after day after day the position of the battlefield hasn't changed very much in over a year, uh, a mile here, a mile there. You can, so Russia is not advancing on the battlefield, 
the way it's advancing is in grinding down Ukraine's defenses, it's especially personnel. Uh, Russia has three times, five times the population of Ukraine and can resupply the troops lost on the battlefield. Ukraine is having more and more trouble doing that. And the plan to call up more troops in Ukraine is meeting with resistance. Meanwhile, Russia is bombing the heck out of Ukraine with ballistic missiles, with bombs, with drones, uh, destroying infrastructure, housing, trying to break the will of the Ukrainian people. So it's it's a become an ugly war of attrition and Russia seems to be in a better position to sustain that kind of ugly war than Ukraine. That's really the situation we have now. I think they are uh, diminishing the will of the uh, American people as well. There's this bill to resupply uh, Ukraine and to make the funding available for Ukraine doesn't seem to be able to get through Congress. Your perspective on that? Well, you said the will of the American people. I I think the American people law has hasn't haven't changed their view very much on Ukraine. I think most people support Ukraine, but Ukraine has become a football in the uh, harsh tactics being used by hardliners in the Republican Party to uh, uh, score points mainly within the Republican caucus itself, and then uh, Republicans versus Biden. Uh, it's not that people care about Ukraine. They're using Ukraine to batter down uh, the, the um, moderate <laughs> language becomes a problem. The ultra conservatives in the Republican Party are using Ukraine to win points against the less ultra conservatives in the Republican Party. Um, and that's really what we're seeing. They, they, they want to uh, hold up any spending for Ukraine until they get their priorities on the border met. Is this lack of new funding for Ukraine from the U.S. Congress causing a problem now? Absolutely. Uh, the, the, the new funding is holding up the supply of ammunition and, you know, additional weapons supply to replace those that have been destroyed on the battlefields in Ukraine. And, and so the Ukrainian military is running out of uh, critical weapons supplies, ammunition, and the rest to carry on this struggle. And it means that Russia now is able to outgun them on the battlefield, and that's not a good sign for the future. How much time does Ukraine have for these money and the supplies from the United States to uh, begin flowing again? I don't want to make a prediction of that sort. I I read that uh, Russia is preparing a new offensive when the ground freezes in e eastern Ukraine. Uh, right, you know, it's it w went through a muddy season in the late fall, early winter. Uh, the ground is now freezing, and that will make it easier to move tanks uh, it, 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 to use tanks uh, in a uh, offensive for fashion. And uh, there's talk that uh, Russian military is going to conduct some offensives against the Ukrainian lines. Uh, 
Will they succeed? Uh, that remains to be seen. It's become exceedingly dangerous to conduct offensive operations because as the Ukrainians discovered in their offensive, uh, the, the defense lines have proved so successful, it's, it's much easier to destroy offensive forces uh, than defensive forces. And so a, a Russian offensive could uh, cause damage to Ukraine, but it could also result in the slaughter, the horrific slaughter of Russian soldiers. Michael Clare, this is Buzz. I'm always wondering, where is NATO? I mean, most member nations, I think there's 31 member states, so many of them are more exposed to Russian aggression uh, and the consequences of that than the United States is in some ways. Where are they in supplying Ukraine the needed equipment? So you have, we have to look at a map uh, here. The countries that are closest to Russia, like Poland and the Baltic states, Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia uh, are the ones that f are the most uh, enthusiastic, the most evident um, pushing for NATO to supply equipment and, and intelligence and everything it can do to the Ukrainians because they fear that they might f f face the same fate as the Ukrainians. So the Estonians are very um, urgent in their their uh, calls upon other NATO members to supply arms to the Ukrainians. But the further west you go towards the Atlantic, towards France and Germany and Netherlands, uh, the, the uh, sentiment diminishes and you find the same kind of divisions as you have in the United States between those who feel strongly about Ukraine um, and those who are more concerned about domestic issues, unemployment, uh, the inflation, uh, cost of housing, and the rest, um, and who, who are therefore public, within the public, within pol political parties, less, um, in, less uh, f feel less urgency in helping Ukraine. Michael Clare, uh, is it fair to say there's no end in sight in Ukraine? I think there is, my sense is that neither Russia nor Ukraine is ready to sit down at the negotiating table at this point. Let me put it that way. I think uh, Vladimir Putin thinks, thinks that things are going his way thanks to what's happening in Gaza, and we should talk about that. G Gaza has been an immense gift to him, that is to say, America's support for Israel in its 100 now 100 and counting day war against Gaza has been an immense gift to Putin in distracting world's attention away from Ukraine and and leading the U.S. to shift the supply of weapons from Ukraine to Israel. So. Um, he sees that uh, he he's got, has more time to try to make advances in Ukraine before sitting down at the negotiating table. And the Ukrainians uh, are still hoping, I believe, that with new technology 
and the delivery of F-16 fighter planes from the West that uh, that they might be able to score more gains on the battlefield before they sit down at the negotiating table. So I think there is an end in sight uh, when both sides, it's going to require that both sides reach a conclusion that further fighting is going to cause them more harm than good. But neither side is, is at that point yet. We are speaking with Michael Clare, Northampton-based defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College. And when we come back, we're going to talk about Gaza and Yemen and Taiwan. We'll be right back. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg. You're listening to Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg, WHMP. We continue our discussion, excuse me, of war and peace with Michael Clare, who is Professor Emeritus of Peace and World Security Studies at Hampshire College, defense correspondent for the Nation magazine, prolific author on defense and security issues. Michael Clare, let's talk about Gaza and Yemen, an absolutely horrific uh, situation in Gaza with so many innocent people dying and now subject to starvation and deprivation, as well as the probability here of an expanding war in the Middle East involving Yemen. Can you sort that out, those two situations out for us and tell us how they're connected? Sure. Uh, I know your listeners have been following this closely for the most part, so um, they understand the a lot of what is going on, but what you know, my my first comment would be that uh, Israel went into this conflict saying it had a plan, uh, the, the, that the the objective of the plan was to uh, destroy Hamas and to rescue the hostages. Uh, these are, you know, understandable, legitimate expectations, but it doesn't seem that the war plan that they're carrying out is uh, achieving those results. It hasn't returned the hostages and it hasn't destroyed Hamas. Instead, it's destroyed apartment buildings occupied by innocent civilians in large numbers. So uh, purely uh, from a military perspective, uh, it's hard to see how Israel is accomplishing its intended mission, but it is turning much of the world against Israel for the tactics they are using, which, which are, are to destroy a, a small territory occupied by two million people. Uh, I, and and I, don't, I don't see how this strategy that they're pursuing is is going to achieve any results anytime soon. So there's that. And meanwhile, uh, other uh, other parties to the ongoing Middle Eastern cauldron have stepped in, namely the Houthi rebels of northern Yemen. This is a a um, religious sect, a Shiite religious sect. Uh, that has seized control of more than half of Yemen and is uh, 
aligned with Iran, but does not take orders from Iran the way the media sometimes says, and feels close affinity to the people of Gaza, the Palestinians in Gaza, and it, in uh, showing their solidarity or the, are attacking ships in the Red Sea, causing economic uh, chaos around the world. Uh, the U.S. has struck, U.S. and Britain has struck targets in Yemen over the weekend, and it's very possible that we're going to see more of that. And who knows where that might lead, the Houthis, what kind of escalation might occur. Let me interrupt for one sec, because the Houthis said, we're going to strike back. Do they have that military capability? These are non-state actors, but you describe them in some ways as if they actually are a military force uh, of, uh, well, of who? I guess that's my question. Who, who do well, they report to? Uh, they are a totally independent, autonomous force. Now, uh, I wouldn't call them non-state actors. They control the capital and most of, uh, at least half of Yemen, if not more. So they are quasi-state actors. And they have uh, the technical means to manufacture primitive missiles and drones. Uh, and uh, so th they've been able to use these weapons. They, pr they probably have ga gained technical assistance from Iranians that allow them to uh, continually improve the, the quality of these weapons, but they're not, they're, they're not importing them. They are manufacturing these missiles on their own, and they probably have some primitive missile factories. I think, Michael Clare, there, there's an important question we all should be asking, which is uh, only Congress has the authority to declare war. Uh, the president has engaged in military action against Yemen, and there are certain circumstances where in self-defense the president has that authority. Do you think this is such a circumstance that the president can bypass the constitutional requirement of congressional approval to declare war? <laughs> You know, I've been having that conversation in my classes for the past 30 or 40 years. Uh, none of the wars that, that we fought in the past decades have had congressional uh, vote uh, to declare war because they've always found a way to get around it on the basis of national security. And that's the, that's the world, the, the country we now live live in. It's a national security society and a national security state where the president has been granted by Congress over and over again the authority to conduct uh, these non-war wars uh, in the sense that uh, they were never declared by Congress, but they're certainly wars and they certainly have congressional authority and the money for them is appropriated each year by Congress and we taxpayers provide the money. So, with regard to this military operation uh, in, in the Red Sea, um, are you at all optimistic that a larger conflagration will be avoided or can be avoided? Because the Houthi are saying, we're going to get you. And they may do it in asymmetrical ways, like, like uh, potential assassinations. But can they strike back? Can they disrupt world shipping? So, the, you know, the... This is part of a larger picture. Uh, 
and today's New York Times has a front page story about the other uh, sectarian groups, the other militant groups that are aligned with Iran, but not necessarily controlled by Iran, like Hezbollah in Lebanon and other uh, Iranian aligned forces in Iraq and Syria. Uh, it's it will will the Iranians uh, order their or urge the, these so-called proxy forces? I think that's the wrong word to use. They're not proxies. Hezbollah has its own command structure and its own uh, politics and ideology. Uh, so the question is whether these other groups like Hezbollah and various other militias will under prodding from Iran or on their own uh, choose to escalate the war. And I think that will depend on what happens in Gaza. If we see more uh, humanitarian disasters, uh, I think the pressure uh, in the Arab world to take action against Israel and the United States will grow. And, and that will that could lead to Hezbollah increasing attacks on northern Israel, and who knows where that will lead. So this is out of our control, is what I'm saying. This is a matter where uh, forces beyond our control are are have the power to step in, and and I think this will depend on what happens in Gaza, which depends on what Netanyahu decides in Israel. What is your view about Biden's ability to pressure Netanyahu to say enough already? 22,000 people killed, innocent civilians killed. It's enough already. Stop. You're destroying the entire uh, infrastructure of Gaza. You know, you've done a lot of it. Stop it. Bill, he's not going to use that language. So uh, you can say that. But your question is, as a matter of fact, does Biden have the power to tell Netanyahu to stop? Yes, he does, because Netanyahu is fighting a war with American weapons, and he needs to be resupplied all the time. And Biden is using emergency measures under law to rush uh, weapons to uh, to Netanyahu to continue the war. So uh, he could say. Mr. Netanyahu, uh, uh, dear brother, um, we've let you have pursued this war plan and it's not working and we're not going to supply the weapons anymore. You have to stop and do something else. Call a ceasefire, negotiate, whatever, but find a better plan. Michael Clare, before we go, could you give us your perspective on the recent elections that happened in Taiwan and what that means for the potential for war and or the potential to maintain a peace with China? It's, I think it's very interesting. Uh, we talk about Taiwan and China a lot and we often disregard the Taiwanese people who voted in a very democratic election and there I think the outcome was mixed. They chose a candidate from the Democratic Progressive Party, which has been in power for the past eight years, and, and which is pro-independence, but they did not give that party a majority in the parliament. So there will be more steps in the direction 
of independence and China will respond with military moves. And that's likely to rile up people in Washington, including uh, candidate Donald Trump, to, uh, to, to use more force in the area. So that could lead to tensions between the U.S. and China. Well, on that optimistic note, no, I'm just, uh, <laughs> it's, uh, here we go. Buzz, you want to make the noise that uh, you started this with? Uh, there we go. That's our, that's our high-tech way of expressing ourselves. Michael Clare, uh, in this new year, you have any hope for peace around the world, or is it just as dismal as we've just, we're about to leave it? I, I fear that there's going to be more violence. I, I also, at the same time, think that... Uh, uh, people's engagement in these issues and awareness is growing. And I think you're going to see a lot more uh, intervention. I point to the South African case before the International Court of Justice uh, calling on uh, Israel to desist uh, from its actions in Gaza as an evidence of how other parties are stepping in, reflecting worldwide horror at what's happening at Gaza. Michael Clare is the defense correspondent for The Nation magazine, professor emeritus of peace and world security studies at Hampshire College, prolific author. Thank you for your insights. Thank you for being with us so often. We really appreciate your time and your expertise. My pleasure. Thank you, Bill. This is Talk the Talk with Bill Newman and Buzz Eisenberg.